This podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, who makes it easy and fun to simply step outside. That might mean breaking a speed record in a rugged, built-for-fun sonic snow tube, walking an extra block in a warm, weather-resistant down jacket, or just taking a breath on your doorstep before cozying up in a quilted sweatshirt. For however you experience the outdoors, shop clothing and gear at llbean.com. Be an outsider. On Thursday, March 31st, the oldest working National Park Service ranger, Betty Reed Soskin, retired after a decade and a half of sharing her personal experiences and the efforts of women from diverse backgrounds who worked on the World War II home front. Betty Reed Soskin is 100 years old. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, Betty Reed Soskin speaks to an audience at the Rosie the Riveter Visitor Education Center. Betty introduces the main park film Homefront Heroes, which will not play here, but you can find on the internet. We'll link to it in the description for this episode. But you'll hear her introduction and her conclusion, which are quite lengthy and the thrust of the presentation. Here's Betty Reed Soskin. <music> For those of you who are accustomed to visiting national parks, you of course know that every national park has an orientation film. And if it's one of the scenic wonders like Grand Canyon or Yosemite or Yellowstone, what you'll get in that film will be the geological facts about that park. And you can do that pretty well in 15 or 20 minutes. It works. And then we have the parks that are created in honor of individuals. On the Capitol Mall, there's George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Dr. Martin Luther King. And out in this area, John Muir, the environmentalist. And in Danville, Eugene O'Neill, the playwright. And in those cases, what you get would be the biographical facts about those lives. And that, too, you can do pretty well in 15 or 20 minutes. It works. When our filmmakers, as charged with coming up with creating that orientation film for this park, you can imagine the kind of challenge that might have presented because this was probably the greatest mobilization of workers since the building of the pyramids of the Great Wall of China. I mean, this was, after all, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's great arse of democracy. It involved every man, woman, and child in the country. Also, there were multiple stories on the home front multiple stories. There was not only the story of the 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans who were interned, 70,000 of whom were American citizens, the story of women's emancipation in a non-traditional labor for the first time, this Rosie the River. There's also the story of, of um, that great explosion at Port Chicago, the vaporization of two Kaiser ships, the loss of 320 lives, 202 of them being black dock workers. The fact that they were tried in mutiny trials up at Vallejo because 50 of those men refused to go back and load those ships because nobody could explain to them what had happened, or what had caused the explosion in the first place. 50 of them refused, were tried in mutiny trials, tried and found guilty of treason because they had refused to obey an order during wartime. 
They were tried and found guilty and sentenced to 8 to 15 years. That was the only time in history that we ever tried 50 people in a single trial. But we did that. 50 people. It's an amazing story. There's also the story of, of, of African-American migration out of the southern states into the east and the west and the north, seeking work and defense plants, sometimes successfully, oftentimes not. The story of, um, oh, many, many stories, many stories. In order to comply with the need for creating that orientation film, and in order to be able to follow those stories, what our filmmakers did was that they chose to do for us two complete films. One's called The War at Home, and that film takes in everything that happened coast to coast. It's the longest of our films. It's a 25-minute film, and it's shown at the top of the hour throughout the day. And that one was necessary, because this is not a local park. It's a national park, so that one had to be made. And then there are fragments of films, not with no beginning, no end. They uh, showed us of them the two-minute film on Rosie the River, and you would guess that women would get a two-minute film, right? <laughs> the six-minute film on Manzanar, the story of, of Japanese-American internment. There um, are a variety of films. We use those. They don't have a beginning and they don't have an end. We use them as conversation starters to take in many of the aspects of that story. Um, Blossoms and Thorns was made to us, not for us, not by our filmmakers, not by our filmmakers, but by the Japanese American Citizens League, done after the explosion at, on uh, September 11th in New York of the World Trade Center bombing. And that one was done because fear ran through the Japanese and Japanese American communities that their country might be guilty of doing the same thing this time to Muslims. And even though they weren't a part of the home front story, they were impounded in, in 10 concentration camps throughout the Western states. Fear, that ran, fear ran so clearly, and they weren't a part of the home front story, but when they knew that this park was going to be created and this visitor center was going to be here, at their own expense, they had blossoms and thorns made so that we could do that so that we could tell that story to avoid that having that happen. Um, there are many, many stories, but the one that I use, because there are also programs, ranger programs, that, that, that go throughout the week, different aspects of that home front story done by rangers. I'm here in the theater three to five times a week. The film that I use limits itself just to telling what happened in the city of Richmond. It's a 17-minute film. The reason I use that film is because it's the only part of the story I can talk about with any kind of authority, because that was the history that I lived. That was the history that I lived. Though the other films are shown in rotation throughout the week, shown on request, you can, you can see them whenever you'd like, uh, and Homefront Heroes, which is the story of Richmond, is told at the bottom of the hour throughout the week because it's an important story, a really important story for us. We're going to share that, that film with you now. And when the film is over, then I'll put my life into context of those years for you. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground 
for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine, from remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts. You can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com or on the app, and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. You're going to find my name among the consultants to the filmmakers. Of course, the reason that list is so long is because everybody on the staff was a consultant to the filmmakers as well. It's also true that I had no idea what a consultant to a filmmaker was or did. So there was no way for me to figure out what this finished product was going to be. I just knew that over about a two and a half or three year period. On occasion, we'd receive from the filmmakers who were at Harper's Ferry on the East Coast, and of course we were on the West Coast, and they'd send us a block of text to be wordsmithed. Or we'd get stills from the Library of Congress or the National Archives, and I'd say, okay. But I was really in over my head. I had no idea what this was finished pilot was going to be. It was as somebody had sent me a box of tiles and told me that in that box was a sunset over the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, how do you know? When the film was finally released to us, finished, just before the opening of the visitor center, and I saw it for the first time, it may interest you to know that I was disappointed. I didn't like it at all, partly because the history as I had lived it was nowhere in sight, not anywhere in sight. But if you're going to try to tell a story with as many moving parts as this story had in 15 minutes, what do you do? You go for the Hollywood ending. We all got together for the sake of democracy and we set our differences aside and we built the ships and we won the war and that tends to be pretty much the way history gets written. And our filmmakers hadn't resisted that temptation and that's what they had done. The real truth was that I was here. I was here in Richmond. I was a 20-year-old young woman of color working in a temporary building somewhere in the middle of Richmond, somewhere some people say it was the 17th and Nevin. Others say it was 37th. I've never been certain, but it was torn down immediately when the war ended. So I'm not sure where it was. The reason I was working there was because this would have been at least a decade before the, the labor movement would be racially integrated. And in order to comply with the demands of the Maritime Commission, the labor unions had created auxiliaries, one at Marin Ship in Sausalito, Another in West Oakland, Boilermakers Auxiliary 26, and in Richmond with Boilermakers Auxiliary 36, into which all the black workers were dumped. Jim Crow was really the other name for auxiliary. Came in every day in a carpool, nowhere near the shoreline. I lived in Oakland, I mean, I'm sorry, in Berkeley. Came in every day in a carpool, nowhere near the shoreline. Never saw a ship under construction. Never saw a ship being launched. 
If you'd asked me at the time, I'd have told you that all the shipyard workers were black because the only people I saw were the people who came up to my window to have their addresses changed, which is what I was doing on three by five file cards to save the world for democracy. As you can see, it worked. <laughs> it's also true that I had no idea what that larger story was. It simply had not, I'd never experienced it, not for one minute. But if you'd known me two years before then, you'd known little Betty Charbonnet, a Cajun Creole child growing up in Oakland, East Oakland, where I had arrived in the year 1927 as a six-year-old. That was the year that the city fathers in New Orleans, which was our ancestral home, chose to bomb the levees against the rising Mississippi to save St. Charles Avenue and the Garden District. And they sacrificed the 7th and 9th wards and the Treme, which was our home. And that year, my mother arrived at 6th Street, Street Southern Pacific Station in Oakland with three little girls, everything we had left in a couple of cardboard suitcases and a crucifix to join George Allen, her father, my grandfather, Papa George, who had settled out here at the end of the First World War and was at that point sharing a little shotgun bungalow out on 76th Avenue with my mother's two Pullman Porter brothers and a sister and Aunt Louise, who was Papa's third wife. And so we were no longer required to, required to call them grandmother. She was Aunt Louise. And there we would wait for my father, who would join us in a couple of months. And I would begin life in East Oakland as a child of the service worker generation. Our fathers and our uncles were the red caps and the Pullman porters and the cooks and the waiters and the bellhops and the janitors and the laborers. And our mothers were 50 cents an hour domestic servants, cleaning white people's homes and taking care of white people's children, because that's who we were as a nation in those years. That's who we were. I graduated from Castlemont High School in Oakland with two opportunities for employment open to me. I could have worked in agriculture or I could have been a domestic servant. My older sister Marjorie, who's a beautiful young woman and a talented artist, spent the first five years of her marriage as half of a domestic team. A young husband was a chauffeur and Marjorie was a housekeeper for a family in Piedmont. And because they lived in on the premises with Thursdays off, which was traditional, they could save every penny they earned toward the down payment on their first home. And this was the traditional pathway into the middle class for African-Americans. This is what my life would have been. This is what the prescription was. Except there was a third choice. It was one I was wise enough to take. I married Mel Reed, whose family had made its way out across the country from Griffin, Georgia, at the first sound of cannon fire of the Civil War. And in 19, Mel, Mel, his father, and his grandmother were all born in Berkeley General Hospital on Dwight Way. And in 1942, Mel was in his senior year at the University of San Francisco, playing left halfback for the San Francisco Dons, and what 19-year-old wouldn't prefer that? <laughs> so that's what I did, and I completely escaped the life of my sister. But I share that history with you in order to illustrate that being a clerk in 1942, even under those circumstances, even in a Jim Crow segregated union hall, somewhere in a little temporary building in the middle of Richmond, even then, that was a step up. My folks were proud of me. I wasn't making beds in a hotel. 
I wasn't cleaning white people's homes. I wasn't taking care of white people's children. I wasn't emptying bedpans in some rest home or hospital. I was a clerk, which in 1942 would have been the equivalent of today's young woman of color being the first in her family to enter college. That would have been the equivalence, because that's who we were. That's who we were. Now scroll ahead with me to 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, I'm back in Richmond. I'm back after more than 20 years as a suburban housewife, living out in the Diablo Valley, living out after, after raising four kids in a redwood-designed house, after outliving two husbands, after decades of friendships with powerful people who are my church members and friends, I'm here this time as a field representative for a member of the California State Assembly. I'm working for Dion Ariner. And when Dion term limited out, I stayed on as a field representative for her successor, Lonnie Hancock, who only recently term-limited out of the California State Senate. I'm in a one-person satellite office, somewhere again in the middle of Richmond. I'm doing constituency work. And along with the rest of field staff, I am helping to determine what kind of legislation might be needed out of the five cities of West Contra Costa County over which my office sat. And if you're wondering whether I became a genius between the time I was 20 and 15 years ago, may I quickly assure you that that's anything but true? <laughs> that dramatic arc of my life from 20 to 15 years ago in no way is a sign of personal achievement, not for one minute. Instead, it's a solid indication of how much social change occurred in this country over those intervening years. Something we all did, all of us. Black and brown and yellow and red and straight and gay and trans. It's what we all did, all of us. And some of us did it kicking and screaming. And some of us are still kicking and screaming. But enough of us, because of what happened right here in Richmond during those years of 1942 and 1945, because of that, Social change continues to radiate out of the Bay Area into the rest of the country. And that's enough to build a park around. That's true. That's true. Now, long, oh, I guess it was during that time, 15 years ago, where the planners were gathered here in Richmond, in my legislative district, and that was when the memorial had already come into being. It lay less than a mile from my office. But it had never dawned on me to visit the Rosie Memorial, because that was a white woman's story. The women in my family had been working outside their homes since slavery, because it had always taken two salaries to support black families. Few black men could do it alone. Few black men. And that ark, that ark had never been entered into in many parts of the country, but even here, even in the greater Bay Area, we had peeled off on issues. A lot of folks peeled off on open housing. 
you know, not ready to have a family that didn't look like theirs living right next door. What about property values? And then more of us peeled off on this decision of Brown versus the Board of Education and not ready to have their children be bussed across town to suit my social agenda. And then more of us peeled off on affirmative action, which was incidentally never a case of quotas, either because they had forgotten or had never known that in 1942, it took $47.25 a week to support a family of five. And let's repeat that. $47.25 a week supported a family of five if you were white. But remember, our fathers and our uncles were all members of the service workers' generation, earning $25 to $35 a week. Pullman porters earned $18 a week plus tips for a 12 to 15 hour day because that's who we were in those years. So the fact that the memorial lay less than a mile from my office, that I had never visited it, certainly rose out of the fact that I could not identify with Rosie's story at all because we were on a completely different plane a different one. Now, 15 years ago, the planners were gathered here in Richmond because this park had become into being through legislation. At a time when, I guess it was around 1966, it had occurred to someone in the Department of Interior that every single taxpayer was funding the creation the development and the maintenance of this incredible system of national parks, but it was only the people who had the leisure time and the financial resources who could afford to visit them. And somehow they began to get a notion that they needed to begin to plan urban parks, but there were no models for those. How do you prepare an urban park without any federal lands? How do you do that? This park had been created in the legislation on paper with scattered sites that lay throughout the city of Richmond. Sites that were either owned privately, commercially, by nonprofits, civically. We were to own nothing. Can you really develop a national park that only exists on stories, only exists under the hats of the rangers? How do you do that? How do you create a national park that doesn't have any boundaries? This one didn't have boundaries. The only park that vaguely resembled it may have been the park in Lowell, Massachusetts, but in that case, the federal government went in, purchased the textile mills, transformed them over time into arts and cultural centers, and in time, the entire city of Lowell, Massachusetts becomes a national park, and maybe that's what happens here in Richmond. But the planners were gathered here to begin to figure out with the owners of the said site and the community the answers to some of those questions. And that's when I discovered the National Park. That's when I discovered it. I'm, I sat in on my first PowerPoint presentation in the main library on McDonald Avenue and met this incredible building next door for the first time the Ford Assembly Plant, designed by Albert Kahn, built between the years of 1929 and 1931, 
to, cons to assemble Model A Fords, but turned out 49,000 tanks and jeeps for the war in the Pacific during World War II. So it was an important piece of the home front story. But that building had been constructed on state-owned land. It was built on air rights. So a seat opens up at the planning table for the state of California, and I'm in it. And I'm the only person of color in the room, and the only person who could look at the PowerPoint, at the scattered sites that lay throughout the city and instantly recognize them as sites of racial segregation. Because what gets remembered is determined by who's in the room doing the remembering. There wasn't any grand conspiracy to leave my history out. There simply wasn't anybody in that room. They had any reason to know that but me. Nobody. Nobody. Atchison Village, named in the legislation, built by the Maritime Commission to temporarily house Kaiser management, but there would have been no black managers at the time. So the question was moot. Nystrom Village, also, built to be restored uh, to show how workers live, but you could not live in Nystrom Village unless you were white. HUD built segregated housing for the workers who were brought in from the South. You could not buy or build living quarters ex if you were not white, except in North Richmond, a place where there were no streets or sidewalks. But that's the way we were. That's who we were. The Maritime Child Development Center, which shows prominently in this film, was the work of one of the, the uh, Kaiser geniuses, Dr. Catherine Landreth, who believed that little children were capable of learning, that caretaking wasn't enough. And what she developed there turned out to be the progenitor for Head Start right here in Richmond. But you could see from the film that there were no children or families of color serviced by the Maritime Child Development Center. None. Now, fortunately for all of us, all of those planners in that room were graduates of Sesame Street. And you're laughing, but in my pantheon of civil rights leaders, there has always been a place for Jim Henson in his children's television workshop and Mr. Rogers. Because we were all back in the 50s, back building the television sets and building the suburbs with our GI Bill and building the automobiles. Our kids were all sitting in front of the television sets being humanized by those geniuses. And Jim Henson and Mr. Rogers really had always had a place in my heart. And by 15 years ago, those kids were all grown up. And by then, they're sitting around corporate boardrooms throughout the country, and they're in the forestry service, and the State Department, and they're in the National Park Service, and they're in the Department of Interior. And now, they're in Microsoft, and Apple, and Twitter, and Facebook, and they all knew that it wasn't easy being green. And they knew that one of these things is not like the other. It doesn't matter one bit. And those planners were not only willing, but anxious to know what was missing in their PowerPoint. And for the first time since I was that 20-year-old, young, unknowing, naive young woman of color in that segregated union hall, I'm in a position to witness the history that I missed. And it was a marriage made in heaven. I read everything I could about the period. The studies were just beginning to come out of the University of California, studies 
by Leon Litvak and Fred Kribic and Margaret Archibald and Donna Graves and Gretchen St. Angelo and Shirley Ann Moore. I read everything. I could, uh, what was existing about Henry Kaiser, I read. Though the, the books have, I don't think have yet been written that are going to do him justice. <laughs> I fell in love with Henry Kaiser. I mean, how could you not? He was a man who had dropped out of school at 13, who had never built a ship, had never built a, had to go to the library to find out how you do that. Came into Richmond as a cement contractor in 1941 on a contract with the Maritime Commission to build ships for the British under Lend-Lease. He knew that if he could introduce the mass production prefabrication techniques that Henry Ford was using in auto manufacturing, he could revolutionize shipbuilding. Nothing that I ever read about him would have convinced me that he was a social reformer, just a smart businessman. He knew all he needed was enough hands, and he didn't care what color they were, and he didn't care who they were attached to, he just needed enough hands. And he knew where the greatest pool of available labor existed in this country, in the five southern states of Mississippi, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana. Whites coming off the Dust Bowl, blacks from the slow mechanization of cotton, everybody coming up from the Great Depression of the 30s, possible for a black man to be standing on the sidewalk in Jackson, Mississippi, where Southern tradition would demand that he not only not make eye contact with a white person, but that he step into the gutter if a white person approached. And that man could be tapped on the shoulder by a Kaiser recruiter and find himself two weeks later in the city of Richmond, riding in the front of the bus, 10 years before Rosa Parks would refuse to give up her seat in Montgomery, Alabama into a city with a population of 23,000. Imagine how small the city was. Into a city with a population of 23,000, only a man with the audacity of Henry Kaiser would choose to import for his four Kaiser shipyards a workforce of 98,000 black and white Southerners who are not going to be sharing drinking fountains, schools, housing, hospitals, even cemeteries, or any kind of public accommodations for another 20 years back in their places of origin. That's not going to happen until the 60s. We're talking 1942. And no time for focus groups and diversity training. They are all living under the common threat of fascist world domination. No time to take on a broken social system. They have to negotiate at the individual level every hour of every day in order to get through it without killing each other. If you knew the sequence in which people were hired because it was not an enlightened Henry Kaiser who was hiring people, it was segregated unions. And first they hired the men who were too old to fight, followed by the boys who were too young to be drafted, and then single white women. And when that pool's exhausted, married white women, and then in 1943, the first of black men hired to do the heavy lifting for the women that they brought on board, hired as helpers and trainees only, never to go above that. And though there were some few black women hired as janitors to sweep the decks and pick up trash while other people worked, 
It wasn't until late in 1944 and early in 1945 when black women began to be trained as welders. And if you know that sequence, and you look at that picture on our wall upstairs or in this film, with all these people standing together like brothers and sisters, color, all colors and sizes and shapes and ethnicities and ages, and we come from a more enlightened time, and we look at that picture and we think, look how they got along back there in 1942. Why can't we do that? What you have to know is that those pictures have to date from late 1944 or early in 1945, because in 1942 you couldn't have gotten a stand together to have their pictures taken. But what you also see in those pictures is that acceleration of social change. They came in as sharecroppers, as you could see by this film. But by the time the war ended, they were shipbuilders and working around the clock on three shifts a day for 364 days with only Christmas off. Behind a man who referred to the bow of the ship as the pointy end, you gotta love Henry Kaiser, they had completed 747 ships in three years and eight months. 747 ships in three years and eight months. By way of comparison, Mr. Moore at Moore Dry Dock, who was a traditional shipbuilder. Mr. Moore had been building ships since the First World War. Mr. Moore completed 100. Bechtel Corporation at Marin Ship completed 93. And Henry Kaiser completed 747 ships in three years and eight months. And right here, right here in Richmond, in his four <laughs> Kaiser shipyards, helped to turn the course of the war around and bring it to an end by outproducing the enemy. That's enough to build a park around. That's enough to build a park around. It began to dawn on me because I stopped working for the state and started working for the National Park Service on a four-year contract as a consultant. When I realized that if we had a place on the planet where we could go back and revisit that era, not by the myths that we made up about it, none of this greatest generation stuff for today's skin-crawling American exceptionalism. But if we go back and revisit that era in truth, as it was lived by those of us who lived it, only then can we get a baseline against which to measure how far we've come. Remember that arc that we all shared? If we don't know where we started, we have no conception of where we are or how we got here only if we go back and retrace our steps. And that's what the park became for me. That's what it became for me. I like to end my talk with my personal history, which is also forgotten, also forgotten. But so many people lived my history. My great-grandmother, Leontine Bro Allen, was born into slavery. 1846 in St. James Parish, Louisiana. She was enslaved until she was 19, at which time she was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation and married George Allen, who was the corporal in the Louisiana State Colored Troops fighting on the site of the North in the Civil War. Together, over time, they produced and raised 13 children. And in their home, my mother was born to their eldest son, George, and his 14-year-old wife, who only lived until my mother was seven months old. But my great-grandmother, 
lived to be 102, not dying until 1948, three years after my experience in that Jim Crow Union Hall. My mother was born in 1894 and lived to be 101, dying in 1995. And I was born in 1921. And the three of us were all adults at the same time, all of us. I was 27 years old, married, and a mother by the time my slave ancestor died. I knew her as a matriarch of my family, and she had raised all of the significant adults who peopled my life. And our lives, the three of us, our lives spanned everything from the Dred Scott decision in the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation and Reconstruction, and Plessy v. Ferguson, and Stockwell and Banzetti, and the Rosenbergs, Lindbergh's flight, and Amelia Earhart's loss, Two World Wars in Korea, House and American Activities Committee in Kent State and People's Park, and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Fannie Lou Hamer and Emmett Till. The moon landing, the Mars probe, assassination of the Kennedys, all the way the World Trade Center bombing. 20 kids in a Connecticut classroom and San Bernardino and nine people in a prayer circle in South Carolina. Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Black Lives Matter, and 26 people in a small church in Texas. And all that happened within the lifetime of three women who were all adults at the same time. And add to that the fact that on January 20th of 2009, as a guest of George Miller, I'm a seated guest on the Capitol Mall with a picture of my great-grandmother in my breast pocket witnessing the inauguration of America's first African-American president in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial. Lincoln, whose life was contemporary with the life of my great-grandmother, and that's how fast the time goes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I know how my generation confronted the threat of its day, a very real threat. World War II, I'm not sure we could have avoided. We did that. We fought that war. We did it, both on the battlefield where we lost 54.8 million lives. On a home front, where there were 37,600 casualties in industrial accidents. We did that under a completely flawed social system. But we nonetheless prevailed. We nonetheless prevailed. Our kids are now facing a new threat that are rising sea levels and global warming and climate change, and they're going to have to match and exceed that great mobilization, this time internationally, in order to save the planet. And they're going to do it under a still flawed social system because the nature of democracy is it will never stay fixed. It wasn't designed to. It be, it's a participatory form of governance that requires all of us. Every generation has to recreate democracy in its time or it will die. The 39% turnout four years ago 
in the general election was predictive of the 40% turnout in the most recent general election, an election in which only 17% of those between 18 and 24 voted, but 52% of us over 51 did vote. So we were opting for yesterday rather than tomorrow. Democracy cannot be sustained in that way. We have a constitutionally protected right to be wrong, a constitutionally protected right to be bigots, if that's what you wish to be. But we also have created this incredible system of national parks where, though they were not designed for the purpose, it is now possible for us to visit almost any era in our history. The heroic places, the contemplative places, the scenic wonders, shameful places, and the painful places. In order to own that history, own it, that we may process it, because I do not believe that we have yet, as a nation, processed the Civil War, that we may begin to, in time, forgive ourselves in order to move toward a more compassionate future together. And this is why, 85, I became a park ranger, because you guys had forgotten all that good stuff. <laughs> but is that not an amazing, amazing story? There's a place on the film where Agnes Moore, a still living Rosie, says, it was the greatest coming together of the American people that I have ever lived through. And during the first months when the film was released, I used to stand against the wall and watch the faces in the half light every time she'd say that. And I'd think, how can Agnes say that? She knows that isn't true. I mean, I've got to talk to that woman. And one day, after my 90th birthday, I became aware of the concept of conflicting truths, that we all create our own reality, and that there are many truths. There are truths that rise out of religious conviction, there are truths that rise out of education, truths that rise out of life experience. There are many truths, and many of those truths that we all harbor are in conflict. And I knew from that day forward that as long as there was a place on the planet where Agnes's truth and mine can coexist, that that was going to be enough for me. And that I get to sit on this kitchen stool in the uniform of the National Park Service and share that insight with the 14-year-old that comes through here is a privilege that I'm granted by the public. And thank you very, very much for coming. Yeah. Thanks. This episode of the America's National Parks podcast was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, with audio from the National Park Service, and of course, Betty Reed Soskin. Happy retirement, Betty. Please take a moment to follow us on social media. Just search National Park Podcast on Facebook or Instagram, or join our America's National Parks Facebook group, now nearly 100,000 members strong. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen to the RV Miles Podcast, or follow Abigail and myself as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. 
Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and find great gear for exploring the national parks at LLBean.com. And by Campendium. Find reviews and ratings for campsites for your next national park adventure at Campendium.com.